Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. It's common politeness to say it's an honor to talk to the people you're interviewing, but uh, in this case, it really is an honor. It's virtual, but at least now I can say I've shared a virtual room with three incredibly talented men. My guests today are Michael Patrick Kelly, the director of Motion in Motion, a really, a really moving, special, and incredible film about an incredible man. And... Um, if you've seen the film, you know the lineup of people who contributed to this film is pretty impressive indeed. Um, very happy to say that um, that my two picks for additional guests today are the ones who've said yes. Guitarist, composer, arranger Bill Frizzell and Grammy award-winning saxophonist, clarinetist, flautist and drummer Joe Lovano. Gentlemen, thank you so much for beaming in today to talk about this wonderful film. Thank you for having us, yeah. <laughs> I've got to start, Michael, by saying one of my favorite parts of the film is when Paul says, I forgot about you, man. <laughs> I just think of you on the sidewalk with your camera. So you've got to tell us, were you just hanging out on the sidewalk <laughs> with the camera? How did this film happen? Uh, well, this film happened, um, I, I moved into this neighborhood on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and uh, quickly realized that I was just surrounded by these amazing, great jazz uh, legends. You know, Max Roach lived around the corner one way. I had met Barry Ultra while walking the dog. Uh, we, we both walked dogs. And... Uh, and he started telling me about this guy and that guy and, you know, Elvin Jones lived here and, and, and they all still lived there at that time. So you could see Max Roach going for his morning walk in the park. And uh, so I said, maybe I should do a, a film about the neighborhood and about what attracted all these, these uh, jazz musicians uh, to move up there. And I started working on that. And uh, after a little while, uh, Barry had said to me, he kept saying to me, you got to talk to motion. You got to talk to motion. Motion's been here, you know, as long as anybody. So you got So one day I uh, just called up Paul out of the phone book. And I was down on the street with my camera in a vacant lot doing interviews with uh, 
various people who lived in the neighborhood for a long time. And Paul came down and uh, he sat there for a few minutes. And uh, just a, a couple of minutes into the uh, interview, I realized, wow, <laughs> I'm in over my head. <laughs> this guy is just too amazing. He is, the, you know, he's throwing out names like, you know, Bill Evans and Keith Jarrett and, and Paul Blay. And I'm just like, I don't know enough about this guy. And uh, when we were done with the interview, I said, hey, maybe we should do an interview, uh, a film that's just about you. And Paul said, no, I'm not that important. There is no film about just me. And, uh, and then I went home and I decided to Google and see who this person really was that I was talking to. And I'm looking and I couldn't figure it out. And I yelled to my wife. I said, hey, you know, I just interviewed this guy named Paul Motion. And there's a guy on the internet here who's 68, but the guy I interviewed is like 50. You <laughs> can't maybe, maybe maybe it's his son, you know. And and as I kept doing searching, I go, no, this guy, this guy's 68 years old, but he looks 50. And uh, you know, and this is where it all began. We did that little piece for the neighborhood film, and Paul saw some some of that, and just slowly it grew. Uh, over time so that he would just call me up and say, hey, I'm going down here or I'm going there. You want to go for a ride? And uh, um, and that's how that night he was going to play with Paul Blay and Gary Peacock at Birdland. And he said, you know, I'm leaving at whatever time. And when Paul said, I'm leaving at, you know, this time, that's what time he was leaving. So I made sure I was in the lobby of his building and he came off the elevator. And that's when he just said, Oh man, I forgot about you. You know, so that that's where that came from. <laughs> There's a lot of taxis. This is a very New York film, I've got to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, obviously, a lot of things happened after the, that that first him deciding to trust you, even though he thought there wasn't a film in his life. I'm sure we know other people think otherwise. Um, let me ask a few questions of the two men who, along with Paul, apparently made up the weirdest band that would ever get booked in the Vanguard, according to Ben Ratliff. <laughs> so, <laughs> Bill and Joey, you guys are a generation younger than Paul. You were the kids. Um, and obviously now, um, looking back, you're, you're sort of getting, getting around to the age when, when um, you know, you were playing with him. Did he see you as equals? I mean, he was a man with a very storied history. You guys were no slouches yourself, but did you ever feel like to did did, did you ever feel intimidated by his experience, or do you feel like he ever looked at you guys and went, "You don't know what you're doing"? Do you remember that? Hmm. You, you want me to say something, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> No, the, take the, take I, the lead. Take the lead, yeah. Bill. <laughs> this might take a while. Okay. No, no I got mean, time. I, no, I looked. Um, I never felt that from okay. him. It was more internal, you know, my own. Because I first heard him when I was in high school. Um, this is 19 January. I have it. I have it from his date book, January. 1969, I went to see Charles Lloyd play in Denver because I had just 
I had bought a downbeat magazine and it had Charles Lloyd on the cover. And I thought, wow, this guy looks cool. I want to find out what this is, you know? So I went to the concert and it was Charles with Keith Jarrett and Ron McClure and Paul was playing drums. And that was, you know, that was a time in my life when, well, to, people say you have your mind blown, you know, but that's putting it mildly. <laughs> what was happening, just what I was discovering in these few years at the end of high school. And so that was right away. Paul was up there in this sort of, what do you call it? Mythological, you know, godlike stature and, you know, I was just dreaming about wanting to play music at that time. And then I, I never would have, could have imagined that some, it's not even that much later, right? From, well, from how many years later is that? <laughs> 13 years later, you know, I'm practicing, da 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 just working, trying to, get it together and the phone rings and Hey man, it's Paul motion, you know? And I'm like, what? You gotta be kidding me. He called me up and I went over and we started playing and then we played for 30, 30 some years, you know? So, so, but yeah, but I know what, I guess I get back to what your question, I never felt what was incredible was, and I think that's true. I don't want to speak for Joe, but it felt like it was our band. I mean, that was, where it felt it always felt like it was my music like you know you put uh, that was this sort of magic when he played with you it demanded that you be yourself you know you that's that was what was so heavy about when i started playing with him it was like of course he was looking for a guitar he wanted a guitar but but it wasn't about the guitar it was about he wanted me as a person, you know, and he wanted the way my mind worked. And um, that it's different than, you know, you get called like you want to, we need a guitar player. Can you play like this or play like that? You know, but he wanted me to play like myself. So. Joe, how is it for you? Well, uh, yeah, Bill, thank you for, for, uh, for that, man. Uh, reflecting on when I first heard Paul was on record, you know, with Bill, the Bill Evans trio. And then through the years, um, hearing him live for me the first time was with Keith Jarrett Quartet at the Jazz Workshop in Boston. I think it was around 1972. Um, that record, Fort Yawa, had just come out because it was in the lobby of the down at the bottom of the staircase going into the jazz workshop. And uh, it was just incredible to be in the, the room, in the audience with Keith and uh, Charlie Hayden, Dewey Redman and Paul and to feel that music and to realize that they were creating something so personal and beautiful um as a as a quartet and then each individual uh, 
rose through the music, you know, and and created their own uh, music within the music. And uh, for me, that was a direction that I was going in myself, you know, and um, like 10 years later, really, uh, I started to play with Paul and Bill around 1981, you know, and um, it was just amazing because those years in between was a lot of uh, soul searching and trying to develop in that world of music, you know, um, coming from my roots from Cleveland, uh, studying like more of the real traditional straight ahead bebop and hard bop into the freer forms that the John Coltrane band had developed, you know, from the, from the records, you know, but when you start to be in the room with people like Bill, when he heard Charles Lloyd and that was, that was around that same time for me, like around 1968, 69, you know, in uh, my late teen, teen years. And uh, then coming to New York around 1976 to really live, but starting to come in New York in 74 and 5, playing in some different groups, you know, uh, going out and really being in the room and hearing folks and having my horn and sitting in and playing with folks, you know, uh, really was uh, the journey, you know, and the development. So somewhere around, I guess it was in uh, 1979, I had just left the Woody Herman band and Paul played at the public theater with his trio, Charles Brackeen. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and uh, I think JF, JF Jenny Clark was playing bass and Dewey's, Dewey Redmond's quartet with Eddie Moore on drums, who also lived up in the, that same area <laughs> that uh, Michael's speaking about, you know, uh, Upper West Side, Central Park West, you know, um, Anyway, so so then to be there with this double concert, really, they each played their own set. Uh, I went with the great guitarist, Bill Diorango, who um, played on 52nd Street. He was in Ben Webster's band. Uh, he was from Cleveland and a real legend in the, in the and mythical legend also in, in the jazz folklore. Played with Bird and Dizzy and... Um, was a friend of my dad's and I grew up with Bill and, and Bill had moved to New York's sometime in the late seventies. So him and I went together and Bill was the one who really introduced me to Paul uh, because the, the quartet with Keith played in Cleveland, the early seventies at a club called the smiling dog saloon. And Bill, Bill played opposite, with his trio, with had great saxophone player Ernie Krivda and Skip Haddon on drums, and Bill, and uh, so Bill had met Keith and Paul and Charlie and Dewey. You know, they were they spent a week playing opposite each other. Maybe nineteen. This was also around 1972, 73. So, so Bill and I went to the concert together, and uh, that's when I first met Paul. Right. And uh, 
1981, which is funny, Michael uh, said that when he met Paul, he, he thought he was 50. Paul was 50 in 81 when we first, Bill and I first started to play with him, you know. And to get to your question, also, it was, it was Paul was uh, such a, an amazing, mature, incredible musician. And he loved to play and he loved to experience playing with people, you know, with others. So he, at that, he was so, um, I don't know how, how to really put it, man. He shared the space with you, you know. He wanted to, it was all about lead and follow and be in the music. And uh, he didn't just play the drums. He played the music, you know. Wow. And he created a way of playing for himself, but also was so influential in in that approach about, uh, you know, of course you deal with your instrument, you know, but you have to really uh, deal with the music. And he was one of the most musical musicians, man, that I ever played with and learned from, you know, about that phrasing, sharing the space you know and uh, the first time i went up to paul's apartment and played um, with bill and mark johnson on bass was amazing man and from that moment on we we bill and i played with paul for 30 years you know the trio really emerged from some quintet settings um that we were exploring with Billy Drews on saxophones, then later Jim Pepper on saxophones, and Ed Schuler on bass after Mark. Uh, Mark couldn't really hang because he, Stan Getz called him. He went on the road, which Stan Getz gave him an itinerary, you know. <laughs> and Paul really didn't have any gigs, right? Yeah, we rehearsed for a long, long time before we ever did a gig. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that led to that first recording. I guess that was our first tour, right, Bill? Where we did yeah. songs. Yeah. I just saw an itinerary from that tour. It's amazing to see that first gig was in Padua. And during that tour, we recorded in Ludwigsburg, Germany. listening to both of you talking uh, that Michael what a privilege it must have been for you as a kind of discovery making this film and hearing so many stories like this from so many of the people in the film uh, whether it's you know Carla Blay or Chick Corea um, younger musicians like Chris Potter um, one thing I wanted to ask you Michael though is about some of the stories that you know Paul said people always want to ask you know what was it like when you played with Thelonious Monk? Did he talk to you or did he say nothing? Oh, he danced a bit. Um, or, you know, what was it like playing with Bill Evans? Hey, Woodstock, what was that all about? So how did you as a filmmaker, and, you know, Paul has said in interviews, oh, God, everyone asked me that. How did you feel like you could cover those things? Because people would want to know about it in a documentary. Um, 
without, you know, <laughs> without Paul going, God, I'm so tired of this. How did you get something fresh from these really legendary stories? I think uh, mostly it was all new to me. Right. <laughs> so, so uh, and Paul wasn't, he wasn't going to lead me in any direction. And so I would sit at the computer just looking up and, and, and searching for things. And uh, one day I went to do a, a short interview with him in Central Park. He's sitting on the bench. And that's when he talks about Woodstock. And he, he goes, Woodstock. Oh, like, you know, because he's caught off guard because I didn't know he had been at Woodstock. <laughs> and, and, and I got to the, uh, sit, I'm sitting out there with my camera and he's on the bench. And I said, hey, you played at Woodstock. And he's like, yeah, like, you know, and so it just came out of him like that. And he just he just started talking about going out with Arlo and Charles Lloyd back and forth, splitting weekends. And uh, and, and that's how th these things would come up. It was just like uh, I, I think uh, years later, I was like, oh, I could have asked so many more things things that I, I'm always learning about Paul constantly. I'm, I'm still to this day finding out things. Joe will tell me something or Bill will say something. And I'll go, wow, I wish I'd known this then. Uh, so it was a real learning experience. And, and one thing I'd like to say is, you know, in the film, uh, Steve Swallow says that uh, Paul, uh, his bebop band was kind of like uh, uh uh, now I forgot what, what, what he called it, but, uh, you know, it was like a, a, a finishing school for young musicians. And Paul was so generous, like, like these guys have said, he was so generous letting, you know, bringing other people in to experience what they had going on. And uh, one day he called me up and he said, hey, you, I'm going, you know, forgot where he was going. He was going to run some errands. He goes, you want to go for a ride? And I said, yeah. And he said, don't bring the camera. <laughs> Why? And I, was like, and I hung up the phone and I was like, <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, at least I get to go for a ride with Paul Motion. So I, so I go downstairs because we lived around the corner from each other. I go downstairs. I go down to Central Park West. He's standing on the corner about to hail a cab. He looks at me and he goes, where's your camera? <laughs> And I said, you told me not to bring it. And he goes, well, who's directing this thing? <laughs> that, that, that was like one of the biggest lessons I ever learned as a filmmaker. Always like, bring the camera. Always bring the, don't listen to, to the talent when it comes to that. And then we went on and had some amazing kind of adventures. He stopped by the musicians union and we met some crazy <laughs> people. And both of us realized we should have had the camera. The camera. So <laughs> that, that, that's, that's a big lesson that I learned, you know, that Paul, who's not a filmmaker, imparted to me in that weird way. So. <laughs> well, so speaking of, and again, speaking of stories, I'm thinking Bill and Joe, obviously you are a huge part of like the heart of this film. So much of what you say in the film is so, you know, enlightening and moving. I just wondered though, what you learned watching the film, there must have been a few stories, whether from Steve Swallow and Carla Blay or other people, things you hadn't heard. And even if it wasn't an anecdote that you learned from watching the film, did you come away knowing him a little bit better even than you did after all those years? Hmm. Oh, 
one thing, it was great to to watch him play and uh, be in in the audience for some of the things that Michael documented that I wasn't at. You know, some of the Vanguard performances uh, and with different folks, you know, and some of the early footage also of um, of Paul uh, that that Michael was able to to kind of somehow gather for the film, you know. And uh, so those those things were amazing. And also, you know, going back and, and after seeing the film and listening some some of the music that Paul participated in and listening uh, and hearing it, you know, in another kind of light, you know, but you know, the, the, the thing about the re- having a relationship with Paul was so beautiful. Cause I mean, we spoke on the phone a lot. Man. And like, I just remember uh, one time he had his phone book. He was going through his old phone book. And he's telling me, you know, and I'm, I'm, he's telling me, you know, who's in. So I started quizzing. I said, oh, yeah. What was Eric Dolphy's phone number? He went to his page, man. He gave me <laughs> Dolphy's number. Paul Chambers. <laughs> Paul Chambers' number. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and I lived in Chelsea and, uh, 924 was one of the numbers, you know. Paul Chambers had a 924, so he might have had a pad in Chelsea, you know. I don't know. But but that was a funny day, man. He had Coltrane's Long Island phone number in his book, you know. And uh that that was that was amazing, you know. Wow. And Bill, what about <laughs> you? Also Bill Bill and I, we heard Paul do some interviews. In some dressing, which that that was deep, right, Bill? I mean, <laughs> to hear Paul, like you know, because like you were saying before, Karen, about uh, him getting asked, what was it like to play with Bill Evans or Keith Jarrett? You know, I remember. I think it was Keith, and somebody asked him, and he was in one of his moods, you know, and he said, oh, "It was all right." So <laughs> <laughs> he said. You know, and the guy, the, the interviewer was like, oh, what do you mean? Hey. It was all <laughs> right, Bill. We heard some. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was so just <laughs> straight ahead, honest, you know, and yeah. but generous, too. You know, then he would. I guess you couldn't predict when he was going to just open. Sometimes he would just open it wide up, you know, and but. I think he also could sense uh, (laughs) – you know what I mean. Uh, I don't know how you'd say that, really. Uh, Just if someone was sort of jive or something, you know, he could – he didn't want to waste his time. He he was just really honest with – didn't we call him what was a chief no no like you know he would he could really easily say no to people like when we when we first started playing that, that's what's amazing when Joe and I started playing with him he had really committed to playing his own writing his own music and 
playing his own music. And um, that, uh, that's where I feel like, wow, we really hit the jackpot there. You know, we were in there at that moment when that was happening. We were a part of him finding this thing. And, but I remember times that, you know, who knows who called him on the phone Leonard Bernstein call or whatever. No click, you know, he's just going to do his own thing. He didn't care. He, you know, he, that was a, a sacrifice he made. Um, I guess we veered quite drastically off from whatever the, I don't remember what your no, question no, the, was. No complaints here. <laughs> one of, one of the more. things, Bill, do you remember like, we eventually did play at Carnegie Hall, the trio. There, yeah. was, there was times before that for like a year or two, like we could have maybe had a moment to play. Like, but Paul Paul never had a real agent in the States that, yeah. really, that really booked him and try, and got behind him, you know. We did in Europe. Right. We had folks booking us like we built, we, we toured three times a year for bunches of yeah. years throughout the 80s, you know, like in the spring, the summer and the fall, but hardly played in the States, you know, handful of gigs. And he turned down playing at Carnegie Hall a few times before the one that we ended up doing that uh, Sarah Humphreys and some folks from ECM. Right. Hooked up. Yeah. That, was, that was an amazing, beautiful evening of music, man. Yeah. Um, I remember playing in there with no microphone. We were just yeah. on the stage, you know, putting it out there in that room. That was that was amazing. I think that was him too. He said, No, we don't want any microphones. We don't need, you know. You could just walk around and play. Yeah, yeah. It was really messy magic moments there yeah man can i ask you michael if as we're hearing from the guys you know paul could say no if uh he wasn't feeling it or didn't want to waste his time did you ever worry over the course of the many times you filmed him and grabbed your camera or didn't and got a cab went down the went down the subway did you ever feel at any point he'd go you know what you're a you're a nice guy but you're not a Hollywood filmmaker and we've had enough. Or did you ever feel like he would say, don't go there, don't do this, or I'm not sure this is going to work out? Uh, yeah, there, uh, I, I never felt that he would say, you know, you're not, you know, uh, important enough for a, a, a Hollywood kind of guy. Cause Paul, Paul wasn't really into, into that, but there were many times he told me to turn the camera off. And, and I often re regretted uh, turning the camera off uh, because we had some of our best conversations uh, on, on train platforms and, and places like that where I didn't have uh, the, the camera uh, running. Um, and uh, uh, now <laughs> my, my train of thought jumped the tracks. <laughs> I... Uh, 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 there was one night at the Vanguard, we were hanging out afterwards. And uh, I, I think this was back when these guys would play like three sets at the Vanguard. And Bill was sitting there with a bunch of people and they were having some drinks and they, you know, it was just that kind of after thing. And this, uh, 
I, I think you guys were playing some comedy album or something like that. But at some point, Paul looked at me and he said, Michael, turn the camera off. And I was like, okay. And very sheepishly, I turned the camera off. I put it away. The next day, Paul called me up and he said, you know, I told you to turn the camera off. And he goes, and Bill Frizzell told me, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> you should just let him do his thing. And he goes, Bill's right. And uh, and I'm, I'm did I say that? that he apparently, <laughs> <you did. laughs> you sure that wasn't Bill? Somebody else? <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he said you told him because you know it was just kind of you know he could be uh, I guess you we'd like to say Kurt <laughs> when he when he told you to stop or turn something off or, or no you know and uh, um, and so when he did I was just kind of like you know <clears throat> but. I kind of got used to it. Uh, you know, he would uh, at, at the at the birthday party. There's the ends one scene where he's putting the the paper plate in front of the camera. So he would do things like that, or or he would see me, and he just wasn't feeling it. He'd come into the kitchen of the Vanguard, see that camera, and just do a U-turn and go back out while I was in the, in the kitchen. And, you know, and when he was feeling it, he was feeling it. When he was, you know, felt like talking or, you know, laughing or joking, you know. So, uh, uh, yeah, but, but uh, yeah, he, he told me, he called me the next day and said that Bill had said that and that he and that Bill was right and that I should just do my thing. And I guess that's kind of like what you, what these guys mean by sharing the space, you know, and, and my instrument per se is the camera. And, uh, and Paul needed to just get, go with that more as opposed to, because I think he was a, a, a bit concerned with how he might look on camera. If somebody caught him, you know, in an embarrassing, you know, bending over the wrong way while he's setting up his drum set or something like that. You know, who, who knows? I, I really can't speculate on that. Sure. But. Um, we hear in the film that at a certain point, he'd had enough of flying to tour and hearing what I've heard today and also in the film about itineraries that stretch on forever. Totally understand that. I can see how you're not feeling that. But um, do um, Bill and Joe, do you think the fact that he said enough with the airports, I'm just going to play where I can drive to helped him remain so creative, so interested in music um, at a time when a lot of people want to, you know, take it easier. Do you think taking away that stress made it possible for him to keep focusing on being creative and collaborating? You know, I think like at a certain point, Paul, like he stopped, he didn't want to leave Manhattan. And uh, he went through a couple of health moments that slowed him down a little bit and made him think about all the traveling and all the things that we, we have to do on the road. And he decided that he didn't want to go on the road anymore. He wanted to just play. Like he, Paul spent a lot of the early days, those cats, they didn't go on the road that much. They played in, he never went to Europe with Bill Evans. Oh, right. You know, and uh, he uh, he had he made a living playing in New York for, you know, 20 years, you know, from the early 50s, mid 50s. Uh, so he kind of went back to that way of thinking. 
Thank you.